Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. Go to Romans chapter 8. Why does it give me such great pleasure to tell you that? Because Romans 8, my humble opinion, greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Now, you may not agree with that. That's my opinion. I'm not alone in that view, by the way. You may say, wait a minute. No, no. Philippians 2, Pastor Scott. That's the greatest chapter. Galatians 5, you might say. Some of you may say, oh, no, no. I'm a, I'm a Sermon on the Mount type of person. I like Matthew 5 to 7. I'm with you. I hear you. It's all good. All right. But here's why I say it's Romans 8. There is more essential doctrinal truth packed into this one chapter than anywhere else in the in the entirety of scripture this is why we are doing this study there's so much here. It is so rich. In just 39 verses, you're going to learn about Christology. That's the doctrine of Christ. You're going to learn about Hamartiology. That's the doctrine of sin. You're going to learn about Pneumatology. That's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You're going to learn about judgment. You're going to learn about redemption, about the atonement of the cross, about justification by faith, about sanctification. You're going to learn about uh, the resurrection of the saints. You're going to learn about heaven, creation, prayer, the foreknowledge of God, election, predestination, the perseverance of the saints. But here's the dominant theme in this chapter. It's called security of the believer. And last week, Pastor Jeremy, he got us started in this study right here in Romans 8. He talked about security of the believer. He said, here's why this is such a powerful truth. To say we are secure in Christ is to know that if we put our faith in Jesus, we are smack in the center of the palm of his hand. And he has closed his hand around us who have put our faith in him and we are secure. And there is nothing and no one, not even you, who can strip you away from his Kung Fu grip. Is that good news? That is some good news right there to know that you can't be lost once you're saved. But here's where people go awry. They say, ah, once saved, always saved. I can get on board with that. I'm saved. That means that I can now sin and live however I want. Is that the right perspective to have? No, that's the wrong perspective, isn't it? Why? Well, it's not the wrong perspective because, you know, there's some slight chance that you could tick God off just enough that he might just let you slip from his grasp and go to hell. No, no. It's the wrong perspective because to say I am saved, therefore I am free to sin demonstrates that you don't really know what it means to be saved. You see, you're not supposed to say uh, I am saved so I'm free to sin. You are to say I am saved in order that I be free from sin. Here's a big ugly sentence for you in your notes. Security of the believer is more than knowing you are saved eternally. It's also being free to experience the reality of Christ's work in your life right now. Would you stand for just a moment with me as we pray? And then we're going to dive in deep today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound truth that we are secure. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, you hold fast to us and you never, ever let go. But God, expand our understanding of what that means to know that on a daily basis, there is a real world application of that 
for us when it comes to the temptations of sin in the flesh. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Be seated. Well, in the Old Testament, God did miracles, supernatural works to assert his authority over the natural world. And you remember some of the stories where miracles occurred in the Old Testament. Down in Egypt, the Israelites, when they were in bondage, God sent in the plagues and there were swarms of locusts that covered the land. And he turned the Nile River to blood, if you recall. And he darkened the sun and things like that. And then when those Israelites are emancipated from Egypt, they they made their way under Joshua's leadership up into the promised land. And there Joshua, uh, he, he led the conquest of Canaan. And there was one instance where he's going to, uh, to war against an enemy and he needs more daylight to finish off his opponent. And so God commands the sun to stand still in the sky and give him more daylight. Miracle. Fast forwarding to the New Testament. Jesus is also doing miracles and we see him asserting his authority over nature. And he speaks peace to the wind and the waves and he calms the seas and he walks on the face of the water and he turns water into wine. And we see him healing people. He casts demons out of people. He causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to walk and the dead to live again. Why does he do these things? To establish his authority and his power. But I also think that he's showing us in these healing works, a picture of why ultimately he came. You see, the object of Christ's healing is often a blind person, a deaf person, a mute person, a paralyzed person, a dead person. Folks, that's, that's what we all are apart from Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we are blind. We cannot see God. We are deaf. We cannot hear his voice. Only his sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. We are mute. We cannot speak as he's designed because the truth is not in us. We are paralyzed. We cannot move about in our life and conduct our life as he is intended. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. And Jesus is saying when he heals people, he says, this is why I have come. I've come to open your eyes. I've come to open your ears, your mouth. I've come to raise you up that you may walk. I've come to resurrect you from the dead. And once healed, a person is expected to live differently. The, the, the dead who are raised now live and move and have their being. The mute speak, the, the blind see and so on. And this is the expectation and this is the perspective that we are to have with regard to our salvation. You see, we have a very limited view, by and large, about salvation. There are three tenses to salvation. I'm going to give them to you right now in your notes. Three tenses. Now, these are a little out of order, but it's because we tend to focus on two of these tenses more so than the third. But what you need to understand right out the gate is that your salvation, Christian, has already begun. It's already begun. Here's the first tense that we focus on. It's the past tense of salvation. It's this. When you put your trust in Christ, past tense, you were saved from the penalty of sin, right? When you prayed to receive Christ, the penalty of sin was removed from you. What's the penalty? The wages of sin is death. That's right. Not just physical death, but eternal death. And so when you trusted Christ, that was taken away. It was a moment in time when that happened. It was, it was a, a historic event in the past. You recall the story in Mark chapter 2. Jesus healed the paralyzed man 
in Mark 2. You remember that? When he healed him, that man could then walk. And as that man would go about his life for the rest of his days, I would imagine that if people came to him and said, hey, tell me about when you were healed by Jesus. What was that like? I would imagine that that man said, oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. My four friends, they carried me on my bed. They, they, they brought me into the city. We came near a house where Jesus was teaching. He was in there. The place was packed. We couldn't even get in the house. My friends told me, we're sorry, we can't even get near the door. There's so many people there. But they were creative and they figured out how to hoist me up on that roof. They figured out where Jesus was inside that house. They cut a hole. They lowered me down. And I will never forget being lowered down right in front of Jesus. And I'll never forget him looking at me and saying, rise and walk. It was a moment. He would remember it. Same thing when you were saved. When you were born again, when you trusted Christ, you may remember that well. You may remember I was a child. I was at vacation Bible school. I was at a camp, a church camp, and I heard the gospel, and I walked an aisle, and I prayed with somebody, and I received Christ. Maybe you were a teenager, and you remember one night you were at youth group, and the youth pastor gave the gospel, and you prayed to ask Jesus to come into your life. Maybe you were an adult. Maybe you were sitting in a chair in this very room on a baptism weekend and you heard the truth about Jesus and you received it and you ran down here. You got dunked for Jesus and we all celebrated. Maybe, maybe that's how it happened. It's burned into your mind. Maybe you were too young to remember all the details. Maybe it happened when you were very, very, very little. And it's a little bit fuzzy to you. I think that's okay as long as you understand that it was a moment. It happened. That there was a time when you understood and you believed and you received. I talk to people from time to time and I'll ask them, when did you first become a believer? And sometimes they'll say, oh, I've always been a believer. I've, I've, I've just, I've always been a Christian. I've always believed. And I think, no, you haven't. <laughs> no, you haven't. You weren't born a Christian, that's not how it works. Your, your mom didn't just pop you out and you just hit your knees, oh God. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the nine months that you provided in there for me. And I just pray, God, that's not how it works. That's why we call it being born again, amen? That's right. It's a moment, and then when you receive it, at that moment, the payment for the penalty of sin is applied to your account. Past tense. We also look at the future tense of salvation. This is the future tense, is that one day when you are raised from the dead, and you're going to be raised from the dead, if you're in Christ, you will be resurrected. Looking forward to that. When that happens, you will be saved from the presence of sin. You see, you have been saved, Christian, from the penalty. It's not on you. Wrath of God, not on you. But right now, do you still have to contend with the presence of sin? Is it a reality? Are you ever tempted? Yeah, we get tempted, don't we? We also deal with the physical effects of being in a fallen world that is tainted by sin. That means after sin was introduced, bodies began to wear out. Bodies would be susceptible to sickness. They would get tired. They would get fat. It's a reality of the fall, right? And one day we all what? We all die, don't we? Guess what? One day as a Christian... You're going to be resurrected. You're going to be given a brand new body. First Thessalonians says the dead in Christ will rise and he will give us in the twinkling of an eye a new resurrection body like that of Jesus. It will be impervious to sin and the presence of sin will not be a reality for you in that state. Is that good news? That's coming. 
I finished a six-week challenge at the gym not long ago, and during that six weeks, couldn't eat anything bad, or good, in my opinion. <laughs> also had to work out all the time, and I, all I could think about is, man, if I get that resurrection body, I ain't going to deal with any of this nonsense anymore, right? Future tense. Uh, but there's another tense that we can't forget about, and it's the what? It's the present tense. Don't forget about the present tense of salvation because not only were you saved, not only will you be saved, but right now you are being saved from the very power of sin. Did you know that? Did you know that there is no power of sin over you right now? When that paralyzed man was healed by Jesus, Jesus said to him, rise and walk. But what did he say prior to that? He looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, I would imagine that was a little disappointing to the man's friends because they wanted him to be healed physically. They dragged his sorry carcass down to that house from many, many, you know, perhaps miles away. They get down there. They lift him up on top of the roof. They cut a hole in that building, lower him down strenuously, only to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. They probably thought, wait, what? We did all that for that? I thought he was going to heal him. They were probably disappointed, but not as upset as the Pharisees were. There were Pharisees in that room that heard Jesus say that, and they got all mad. They got in a tizzy. They said, your sins are forgiven. He can't forgive sin. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus knew the minds of those Pharisees, and he said, hey, fellas, don't get your shorts in a bundle. Listen, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And to demonstrate that he indeed did have the authority to forgive sin, he looks at that paralyzed man and he says, take up your bed and go home. Now, what do you think that old boy did in that moment who got healed? You think he just continued to lay there? You think he wiggled his toes and his fingers and thought, well, I'll be. Huh, he did heal me. How about that? Well, that takes a load off. Now I can relax. Heck no, he got up. I think he sprang to his feet. Do you think he walked home? I don't. I think he sprinted home. I think he pranced home. I think he hopped home. I think he skipped. I think he did one of these numbers right here, all the way home. Why not? You do the same thing because you can. Because you couldn't before, and now you can. Because you are set free from the bonds of paralysis. There's no constraints on you anymore. Folks, that is exactly what Paul is saying. That is the logic that we are to have because Paul is saying once upon a time, you were paralyzed. You were blind. You were deaf. You were mute. You were dead. And then you met Jesus and he believed and you received and you're not anymore any of those things. But when you were, what was it that made you so? It was sin. It was, that's a consequence of sin. And what is it that reveals sin? It's the law of God. It's God's law. You see, sin is not an object that you partake of. When, when man fell into sin, Adam didn't find a sin tree that produced sin fruit and he partook of it and it tainted him. God issued a command. The only law that he had to follow at that point was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he disobeyed that command. And it was the action by which sin 
entered the world. And so it is the law of God that reveals and identifies and condemns sin. And so the only way to avoid the consequences and the reality of sin, the effects of sin, is to meet the righteous requirement of God's law. Well, that's a problem because you can't do it and neither can I. You say, are you sure about that, Pastor Scott? Oh yeah, I'm sure. How do you know? Because Adam couldn't do it and he was created perfect. Newsflash, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We have a sin nature. He didn't. If he was created in perfection and couldn't keep God's law, we're already behind the eight ball coming in because we've got a sin nature. We have no shot. So here's God's solution. In your notes, number one, the key to fulfilling God's righteous requirement is a new identity. See, that your problem is your identity when you come into this world. You have a sinful identity already, right out the gate. You need to become something altogether different from what you are when you enter this existence right here. Paul writes in verse 4, he says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, your identity as a Christian is that you are saved. You have a saved status in Christ. Paul describes salvation as being in him, in Jesus. Pastor Jeremy talked about this last week. What does it mean to be in Christ? Why do you need to be in Christ? Because you're dead and he's alive. And so you take that which is dead, you put it inside that which is alive, and now you are alive. There's no other religion that has this concept. Okay, there are no Buddhists running around going, I am in Siddhartha Gautama. That's not a thing. No Muslims going, I'm in Muhammad. No. Wouldn't do you any good to be in either of those gentlemen because they are sinful, they are mortal, and they're dead. Jesus is holy, righteous, and the son of the living God. And so Christians are in him, and he is in us. He takes his spirit and he places his spirit inside of you. Now you're alive and guess what you can suddenly do because his spirit is in you. You can keep the law. You can obey him. That is the benefit. Galatians 3.11 says, it is now evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. You can't keep the law and be justified. Nobody ever got righteous because they kept the law. Okay? That's just a reality. Paul says that the identity of those in whom the righteous requirement is fulfilled are those who walk not according to the flesh. To walk is to live, to conduct your lives. What manner do the righteous conduct their lives in? They don't do it according to the flesh. What is the flesh? Is that this epidermis that we all have on our bodies? No, I'm talking about flesh in the moral sense, the sensuous nature of man. Okay, I'm talking about those fleshly desires that contend uh, with us and that wage war against our soul. Do, do you guys struggle with fleshly desires? Who, 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 has, who struggles with temptation and flesh? Oh, get your hands up. I know you're in church and everybody thinks that other people think they're perfect. We're, let's just all raise our hands right now. See, there we go. We all struggle. It's all out there in the open. Everybody's comfortable now. But here's the thing. We all struggle, but Paul says you don't have to give in to it. You are no longer hardwired to sin as you once were. Because prior, all you had was the flesh. 
Now you have the flesh, but you also have the spirit. And you can live according to the spirit. And that's God's design right here. He says, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's the spirit of God that fills you, influences you, leads you. And God has, by his spirit, taken his law and placed it in your heart. He's put his law inside you. You know what you call that? That's called the new covenant. The new covenant. You may recall Israel had a covenant. They had the old covenant. That meant they had a law on the outside to follow, a physical external law. It started as the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. It was later expanded to be all of these rules, hundreds of regulations with nuances to follow to the letter and all of this stuff. Did anybody ever keep it perfectly? Only one, Jesus Christ. That's it. So did the law ever serve to save anyone through their keeping of the law? No. So what did the law serve to do? It, it condemned people. Because if you keep 99.9% .9 of it and you fall down on, a, on just a fraction of the law, you're guilty of violating the whole law and the wrath of God is on you. And that's how it works. So how do you escape that wrath? How do you obey an external law? How do you meet that requirement? You take the external and the only way to obey it is for it to become internal. God puts it on your heart through his spirit. This is what Hebrews 10 quotes from Jeremiah. When God says of Israel, I will put my law in their hearts. I'm going to write it on their minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. He's going to do that for them. They're going to be getting in on this new covenant. But right now he is extending that to you and I. And he puts his spirit inside us. Now, here's the implication of that. You have a new identity. And with your new identity, now sin is unnatural. It's unnatural for you to participate in sin now with this new identity. Does that mean I'm sinless? No, but you sin less. You're not sinless, but you sin less. You have the propensity to follow God's lead. You don't, you're not so quick to slander. You're not so quick to anger. You're not so quick to lust because of the spirit that's in you. It's meant to be a guide in your life. It's meant to be a voice. It's meant, meant to prompt you in how you should go. I remember the first time I ever encountered GPS. Now, it seems like forever ago now, because we've all got it on our phones now, right? You remember when it was very expensive to have it, and you had to buy like one of those devices and put it in your car and all this stuff? I didn't have money for that. And so I remember as newlyweds, my wife and I borrowed my in-law's car. They had a sporty little Honda S2000. We went to Palm Springs one time, and we, we put in the coordinates, because I didn't know how to get there. I was from out of state, and uh, I'd never used GPS. And I'm driving along. Pretty soon, this British lady starts talking to me. In a quarter mile, turn left. I thought it was my wife. And then I remembered, hey, you're not British. And it, it kind of freaked me out. But the Holy Spirit will prompt you as a Christian, maybe not an audible voice, okay, but there's a guidance that comes from inside because that's where he dwells. And I love to be around new believers. New Christians are so refreshing. They're so exciting because they just, they're vibrant for the things of the Spirit. They want what God wants. They always want to be surrounded by God's people. They come here. They're, they're here every time the doors are open at church. Why? Because they want to be surrounded by the family of God. Is it because they've read Hebrews 10.25? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
No, they don't know that verse. They're brand new Christians. They're doing this because of the spirit inside them telling them to do it. New Christians go to people that they've wronged in their past, in their past lost life, right? And they ask for forgiveness. And their old buddies look at them like they've joined a cult. Why are they doing this? It's, it's because of the new birth. It's not because of Matthew 5, 24, leave your offering and go seek reconciliation. They don't know that verse. Most of you don't know that verse. They're doing it because of the new nature, the new birth. And number two in your notes, your actions are meant to be the outgrowth of your identity. Paul says for those in verse five who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. You know what I love about that verse? It's not a command. It's a fact. It's not there for you to obey. It's there for you to believe. And what you believe determines what you do. Do you see yourself as being of the spirit? If you believe that you are who God says you are, then you will do as God instructs you to do. It starts up here. It starts up here. Last week, Pastor Jeremy talked about justification. He said justification is always followed by sanctification. What does that mean? What's justification? It's when you first put your faith in Christ, God looks at you. He says, because of your faith in my son, I declare you righteous. You have sinned, but because of your faith, I am declaring you righteous. When I look at you, I see Jesus. That's, that's what justification is. Now, the natural result of that is that because of that, you have the Spirit in you, and you begin a process called sanctification, whereby you become more like Jesus, and God molds you into the image of Christ through your obedience to what the Spirit inside you is telling you to do. You follow me? And in Scripture, there is no concept of justification that is not followed by sanctification. People don't say, I believe in Jesus, and God saves them, and then they just live however they want the rest of their life. They don't lose their salvation, but if that sanctifying work isn't happening, it wasn't an authentic profession of faith to begin with. What does that mean? That means if there's no work of sanctification going on in your life right now, it calls into question the authenticity of your profession of faith. Is it authentic? Was it real? Now, I'm not saying that so that you can look around you and try to identify faker, 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 phony, phony, faker, phony, right? Because when you hear a sermon and you leave and you think, boy, so-and-so really needed to hear that today, you probably missed the point. Time to put you under the microscope right now. Is God doing a work in my life? If not, why not? But that's what you do if that's what you are. You follow me? And Paul contrasts those who live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, more often than not, why is that? It's, it's very possible because you are of the flesh. It's not that saved people can't do sinful things. We can. But if it's an ongoing pattern that, over which you have no victory whatsoever, nor any kind of uh, uh, conscience about it, if it brings you joy to do it, engage in it, sinful activity, very likely you're of the flesh. Why do people live according to the Spirit? There's one reason only. They're of the Spirit. 
No one lives according to the Spirit if they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. What you are should result in what you do. I have a dog. My dog scratches herself a lot. Why? Well, could have something to do with her shampoo. Maybe it has something to do with her food. Uh, but I don't think so because we use good stuff. Probably she scratches herself because she's a dog. Could be. Any cat owners in here? Who's got a cat? You got a cat? Did you teach your cat, Nikki, did you teach your cat to hack up a hairball? You didn't? Worst trick ever for a pet, right? Play dead. Roll over. Vomit hair. That's not, that's not a great trick, right? Why do they do it? Because it's a cat. It's what cats do. Have you ever noticed we have geese out here? In the front of our building, they come out here annually. They land here on their way south. What do they do? Well, one of the things they do is they poop all over the pavement. Now, we're not thrilled about that. we got to spray it down because we got visitors on the weekend, right? We don't want them wading through all that stuff. Why do they do it? Because that's what geese do. We could ask them nicely not to. We could leave them a nice little note. Please don't defecate on our sidewalk. We could leave them a whole list of grievances as to why we don't enjoy that and post it to the front door of the church, call it the 95 feces, whatever. <laughs> A little Reformation joke for you. But they're going to do it because they're geese. Why does a lost man have no interest whatsoever in prayer, scripture, uh, reading, gathering, worship, all of that? Because he's of Adam. He's born in sin, brought forth in iniquity, just like you and I before Christ. That's who we were. But Paul says those who are of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's who you are. Now you say, well, wait a minute. If that's who I am, and I, I believe it is, Pastor Scott, I've prayed to receive Christ. I am trusting in Him for my eternity. I believe He died for my sin. He's, God raised Him from the dead. That I life. believe in all of that. Why do I struggle with sin? Why do I still struggle with sin? Well, how many natures do you have? You've got two. So do I. I got a new nature. I got an old nature. What else do I have? I've got a will. And all my Calvinist friends just cursed under their breath, as I suppose they were predestined to do. But you do. It's true. You have a will. And you can choose to live according to the Spirit, or you could choose to live according to the flesh. But listen, when you sin, you operate outside of your identity. When we sin, we operate outside of the identity that God has given us through Jesus Christ. We choose momentarily to disbelieve what God says about who we are, and we choose momentarily to believe what the world says about who we are, and we refuse to uh, believe that we can uh, rely on the power of someone, someone greater than us to overcome sin. The lure is too great, we think. And so we submit to that instead of submitting to the Holy Spirit. Starts right here. Starts right here. A friend of mine, he was a pastor. He, he uses the analogy of the trees in the Garden of Eden. You recall there's a tree of life. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one's forbidden. This is the one that is righteous. He says, when we live according to the Spirit, it's like we climb up into the tree of life. And when we live according to the flesh, it's like we climb up into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And some days we, we spend all day in the tree of life. And some days we spend all day in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And some days we hop between 
the trees. We go from one branch to the other side and back and forth. He called it the monkey anointing because you got a will and God allows you to do it. But listen to me, before you knew Christ, you could not access the tree of life. And now you can. And by his power, that is where he wants you to reside and to remain. And number three in your notes, depending on your identity, if you're lost or if you're born again, different results are produced. Paul contrasts the different results depending on your identity. First of all, there's either death or there's life and peace. In verse 6, he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. And if you uh, are dead, that means you're alienated from Christ. If you die in your unbelief, in your uh, lack of acceptance of Him, you will go into eternity alienated from Christ. And that is a, uh, an eternal death. But if you know him, there's a relationship there. There's a status there and that brings life and it brings a great sense of peace. And when you depart this mortal plane and you venture into eternity at long last, you will be in his presence forever. And that will bring you eternal life and eternal peace. And then Paul says, you're either going to have, depending on your identity, you're either going to have hostility or submission. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile, hostile to God. Unbelievers are not just of a different opinion, okay? I think sometimes we think that Christianity is just on, on par, on equal footing with other religious worldviews throughout uh, throughout humanity, right? Uh, Buddhism, uh, Shintoism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, and then there's Christianity. We're just, it's all different worldviews, different opinions, different intellectual conclusions. No, not according to Scripture. Those who reject Christ are hostile. There's a hostility there. Uh, they don't have a different belief system. There is a rejection of God on their basest level. They reject the Lord. They reject his word. They reject his son. They reject what the Bible says about sin, what the Bible says about man's inability to save himself. And this is what offends them the most on the deepest level is this notion that you are not good enough. You cannot attain by your own merits eternal life. And that's offensive to man's flesh. And our natural sensibilities, we reject it. If you ever witnessed, you may have encountered that kind of hostility. Maybe you rejected the gospel at some point before coming to Christ. Maybe you were once hostile. And logically so. I mean, it's kind of an offensive message, the gospel. Right? If you strip it down, you've seen these honest movie trailers? They're kind of comical. They, they kind of take all the flowery language out uh, and they just make it very blunt. Like, here's what the movie's really about. It's meant to be funny. Here's the honest evangelism pitch right here. Hi, I'm here to tell you about a personal God who's also a righteous judge that you have offended by your sin. And your righteousness that you think is so great is really nothing more than filthy rags. And if you'd rather trust in that than in the work of Christ, then you have offended a holy God and you will burn forever in the lake of fire. <laughs> now, we could wordsmith that a little bit. It's a bit in inarticulate. But at the end of the day, is any of that inaccurate? That's all true, isn't it? Can people reject that on any level and still be saved? No. You really need to accept that truth on some level. 
but the flesh will not. Paul says, for it, that's the mindset of the flesh, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. The flesh doesn't want to be subject to anybody. Nobody wants to be uh, uh, under someone else's authority. That's why we are prone as a race to be drawn to messages that say, the answer is within. To thine own self be true. You got anything along those lines that's really more my speed? That's really more my jam. I like that. I like that kind of a five steps to a better life. You got five pillars of wisdom. I think I could get around that. I think I like that. How about some incentive? Something I can work toward at my own pace, on my own time? Something in eternity, like a reward? Because if I can work for some, you got like 72 virgins or something like that I can work toward. I think I could surprise you. But to say you have to admit your own ineptness, you have to accept a freebie at someone else's expense that they died to give you because you're not good enough. The flesh doesn't want to do that. And resultantly, Paul says, depending on your identity, you bring about God's displeasure or God's satisfaction. In verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, cannot please God. And then he says, you, however, oh, thank God for the however. He says, you, the church, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You can't be saved apart from the spirit. Did you know that? That's why we know it's not a second baptism. Sorry to my charismatic friends, but it's not something you get later on. You pray to receive Christ, you get all of the spirit that you will ever need. But if he's in you, live like he's in you. You're not of the flesh, so don't live like the fleshly live. Live like the spiritual live because you can. You've been healed. Walk in that. And then Paul brings us to the third tense of salvation. Number four in your notes, the spirit inside you gives assurance of a future resurrection. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then he says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know what this is saying? This is saying that the spirit that's at work in you right now, one day is going to resurrect you and you will live forever. Like we talked about before, free from the presence of sin. Final salvation. Now reverse engineer that knowledge. Do you believe one day that God's going to raise you from the dead? You believe that? If you believe that, logically, then you may now live your present life in accordance with that fact. Because the spirit that one day will raise you is at work in you now. And by that spirit's power, you can overcome the temptations that you presently face. And you can please God by his power, not your own. Here's a definition of faith for you. It's not in your notes. You're free to write this down. Faith is your present life operated according to a future reality. Your present life operated according 
to a future reality. And you believe God's going to do what he says he's going to do. He's going to raise you from the dead. Then conduct your life by faith right now as a resurrected person today. Would you bow your head? Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Scott, I am not experiencing that work, of, uh, that work of sanctification right now. And I believe it's because I have never put my faith in Jesus Christ. I know that I've never trusted him for my eternal salvation. But I'm ready. I'm ready right now. If that's you, I'm going to invite you right in this very moment to pray with me. Pray right now in your heart where you are, with every head bowed, every eye closed. You can invite him. You can say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I know you died for me to pay the penalty of my sin, and I know that you rose again that I may be given life and that's a free gift that I can't earn. And so I am acknowledging my need and I am accepting your free gift. Your, your spirit will live in me and I can follow you by your power. In Jesus' name, with your heads continuing to be bowed, if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, it's the first time you've ever prayed that prayer and, and you meant that in your heart, would you just slip your hand up right now? We want to pray for you. We want to come alongside you today. Amen. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this opportunity. We give you honor and glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.